Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague Paul Rickard. Hi Paul. Hi Peter. And uh, this week we have a really, really big show. Now, who used to say that, Paul? Are you young enough to, or old enough to remember that? I'm too young, Peter. That was Ed O'Sullivan. <laughs> Ed, the Ed Sullivan show on the, uh, the, the most watched program in the history of US TV to that point in time was the Ed Sullivan Show. Even the Beatles uh, debuted in America on the Ed Sullivan Show. And he would always have a really, really big show. Well, we have. We kick off with uh, Mark McCrindle. Now, Mark is arguably one of the, the best social analysts in the country. He's been doing a lot of work for a long time. And we're going to ask him about you know, what businesses are heading in the right direction, What's going on with retail? Yeah, he's done, he's done a lot of research into retailing and what consumers yep. are doing and how their how behaviour is changing. So that that should be a, a fascinating interview. Yep, without a doubt. Then we got Fabian Siegel, the CEO of Marley Spoon. I couldn't do that. You did this earlier this yeah, week. Yeah, no, I called that up earlier the week with uh, with Fabian and uh, Marley Spoon. I, I, to be honest, Peter, I didn't know what they were. But they're killing but, it. It's all pre prepared yeah, meals you, you, and stuff. You, you, isn't you it? get a whole box of you. Go online and you actually order a meal that you can cook at home. An idiot like me. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, and, and Fiona's away. Yeah. You probably yeah. need and, and I didn't know that the recipe changes every week, so it's not a standard menu. And mm. you know, people get this this meal and their chefs prepare it, and it all comes with exact portions. All you need at home apparently is a bit of oil and a bit of butter and some salt. Everything Staggering, else comes in the box. It's a new but, world. Uh, look, they, they're, it's actually an ASX-listed company, but most of the business is offshore. So mm. he's, he's uh, I think, Germanic by origin, yeah. but uh, the business has sort of started in Australia as a test market. Mm. The company's listed here, but most of its business now offshore. Is, is so. it listed as Marley Spoon? Yeah, it's listed as, uh, as, as Marley Spoon. It's not Stock top Co- 300, is it? No, but yeah. stock code Triple M. There's a good, there's a good yes. ASX. You, yeah, just been my history of Triple code. M. Yeah, fantastic. All right, and then we talk to you know the most exposed economist in the country, Shane Oliver. AMP, when when you say exposed, we should qualify that because uh, there was a survey out today, I think, uh, yeah. that said that Shane gets more mentions, more tweets, more followers yeah. than any other economist in Australia. So, yeah, and I think in the northern beaches, he's very exposed when he goes swimming all the time. He's a big surfer. Is changed. Also, an Elvis Presley impersonator. And known for his very colourful ties, Peter. Very colourful ties. Okay. But more importantly, we're not going to, we, we will rag him a bit, but we will be talking to Shane about will the Reserve Bank be cutting interest rates tomorrow? Will there be a massive house price collapse like some people think there will be? They're wrong. And then finally, uh, we'll, we'll talk to him about what kind of economy will the next government inherit? That's the show. Uh, thanks for joining us. And we'll be uh, kicking off with our first interview with Mark McCrindle from McCrindle Research. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, Peter. So, look, um, I I know you you cover lots of areas, but an important area that you've been looking at recently has been supermarkets and retail. So what's happening in the retail space nowadays? A fair few shifts there. Consumers are more empowered, got access to more information. They're really trying to save money and, and, and do things in a smart, clever way if they can. And so we're seeing at a grocery level, a lot of 
brand substitution. You know, a lot of that shifting of the mainstream brands to the lower cost private label brands. You know, Australians are more global in their outlook. They're aware that you know, not every brand uh, has to be a brand they grew up with. And so that's really opened up the options for them to buy the cheaper alternatives. You know, we've seen not only a shift in what people are buying, but, but where they buy. You know, and you've got the competitor supermarkets like Aldi and now Costco uh, emerge. And, and that's really been embraced by Australians. They're happy to buy in bulk, you know, if it means saving money. So quite a shift in what we buy and when we buy and how much we buy, uh, all to save some dollars. Mark, can I ask you a, a dumb question um, in relation to whether supermarkets make a lot of money out of home brands? Do they make, actually make more than selling their, uh, their own branded product than they do perhaps by than selling, say, a Kraft or one of the big global multinational brands? Yeah, they do. And, uh, you know, it's quite a, a challenging uh, reality for them, you know, because they've got to work with those big brands that are, that are their suppliers and they don't want to be seen to be pushing those supplier brands off the shelves. But the reality is, and we've all seen it, those shelves are getting more and more full with those supermarket-owned brands. And they'll even have different levels of brand, the, the, the premium home brand and then maybe the budget home brand as well. They can then, as supermarkets, control the... The, the, the brand control the market, control the pricing, and of course, you know, a lot of that is sourced from manufacturers and suppliers that might even have a, a mainstream brand that we know, but it really means that the supermarket has that power. Mark, uh, we, we keep seeing that retail numbers aren't as strong as we'd like them to be, and the labour market's actually getting better, more people are finding jobs. And I was recently talking to the, um, the boss of Australia Post, Kristen Holgate, and she was saying that, well, you know, retail e-commerce-wise is really growing at a rate of knots from her point of view because she is a fulfilment um, partner for lots of these online businesses. So two questions. One, are we buying a lot more online than ever before? And B, are people actually spending more of their limited amount of money that they have for their disposable income on services like never before. I know I have to confess that I've been seen having a, a manicure and a pedicure and a massage. These are sort of things that big blokes like me would never have had five, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago. Well, exactly, Peter. And both of those trends are strong at the moment that people are spending a lot. Now, as I said earlier, they're, they're spending money in a smarter way, trying to cut down on what they might be spending per unit. But they're certainly not cutting back on the total amount that they spend as a whole. They're, they're in a sense, getting more for less. That's really been the trend. We've done some price comparisons across the, the areas. I mean, from groceries, we're, we're spending a lot less per unit on bread and milk and you know, the basics than we did even five or six years ago. Prices, in other words, uh, are going down. There's deflation. Certainly the case in the electronics world, what you spend on a TV now and the quality that you get or any other electronic it's a lot lower cost than, than what we were spending five or ten years ago. So we can make money go further, and Australians aren't at the point of cutting back on the amount that they're buying, and that's why we're seeing the delivery services, uh, Australia Post and the like, do so well because we're shopping not just in-store but online, and it's creating that whole, that whole delivery uh, industry. And the second point you made is a strong one as well, and that is that we are swapping money for time you know we're, we're prepared to spend money to save ourselves time on those services we've been outsourcing as 
consumers for a long time now, getting the lawn mowed or getting the laundry done. Uh, but these days, it's, it's getting the fast food delivered. You know, it's, it's picking up the, uh, the services that might help us, uh, you know, everything from manage the kids in terms of getting someone to come and organize the kids' party, you know, outsourcing that through to even getting the oven cleaned or the, 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 the bin washed or, uh, or, or other delivery services make our life function. So a lot more of that outsourcing, outsourcing which is really creating whole new service businesses. So, Mark, you said that uh, more and more consumers are going online to purchase. You also said that we've got price deflation in the big supermarkets and in uh, electronics. What's the future for the sort of traditional, you know, bricks and mortar type small retailer? Are they going to be, if we look, think about what our shopping centres or what mm. currently make up shopping centres today are like in 10 years' time, are we going to see the same sort of number of shops and same, as we see today? Well, they'll still be there. Those big, those big, uh, uh, big uh, retailers and the uh, the, the destination uh, retail centres will still be there. And what they have in their favour is timeless human needs and human nature. And that is that we're tactile beings. We want to see things and smell them and touch them. We, we're social beings. We want to interact with others. We want to look at what's new. And that can't all happen online. Now, if it's something that we know, if it's a commodity purchase, I need the toilet rolls, I need the cleaning products, we'll go online. But if it's to uh, see what's happening out there, if it's to buy something fresh, if it's a, a little heart purchase, you know, I want, to, I want to try out some new fashion options or indeed just some entertainment, that's going to be the future of those uh, big retail outfits. And so they will become destinations. They will be a mix of where we go for, for the dining, for the cafe, for the, for the social interaction, the entertainment, as well as you know, certain types of purchasing of retail that we don't want to do online. So they do have a big future, but they certainly are not like the Westfields or the supermarkets we used to know, which had the butcher and the baker and the grocery store. There's going to be a lot more going on Indeed, as there already is, but even more of that into the future. Mark, you know, I keep hearing you know, in the media that you know, people are under mortgage stress. And as an economist, I think, well, hang on, interest rates keep falling. And, I, and, and even though people might have borrowed a lot during the boom, they still, their interest rates really haven't gone up unless maybe they had um, uh, income, interest-only loans or something like that. But it seems to me that people are probably have debt stress because they are buying heaps of stuff nowadays, either be retail goods or services, or they, they go overseas and they put it on the credit card. And, yeah. and, and it seems to me with a lot of young people in particular, maybe even middle-aged people, have to keep up with the Joneses, but of course nowadays it's keeping up with the Kardashians. Are, are we under stress because we're just trying to buy too much? Yeah, that's a fair bit of why we're seeing the average household debt-to-income ratio continue to rise. You know, partly it has been the rising costs of living in terms of housing costs, mortgage repayments and rents, you know, because of the, the rising house prices generally, although we've seen that soften over the last couple of years. Um, partly it's been the rising costs of living in terms of the utilities bills, the energy bills. So, so that has had an impact on household budgets, and they've been really the only two areas that have gone up. I mean, as Australians, we're even spending less on, on alcohol, less on you know, cigarettes where people are getting a bit healthier and all of that has come down. So, so that's been good. But, but we are spending, apart from you know, the house price challenge, 
uh, we have been spending more on not wants but uh, not needs but wants, you know, and uh, and keeping up with with what's going on. We've we've certainly spent more on the going outside of things, the entertainment, particularly uh, restaurant and and hotel spend, as we. We've really, you know, lived up the, the the social aspects of things. Maybe it's partly the social media world, the Instagram world, where we have to share everything, and so we want to make sure we are getting out and uh, and having uh, having some good social interactions. But nonetheless, we are spending more, and that is money being spent on depreciating assets, on intangibles, compared to the previous generations that were spending more but on appreciating assets, they were happy to invest in, in things that were going up in value like your property yeah. investment or maybe their own home. So, so that's been the generational shift in spending and it can have some long-term consequences. Yeah, Mark, I know how young you are. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit older than you and I do remember when people didn't buy seven or ten cups of coffee yeah. a week. You know, like if they're working on $4 a cup, there's at least 30 bucks going out on a thing called coffee. They used to have tea at home. That cup of tea probably cost them five cents you know, with the yeah. milk and the tea. That's, a, that's a, an example of how we're, we're committed, we're, we're addicted to spending probably 30 bucks a week on coffee. Well, so true. And, you know, every workplace used to have a lunch room because you'd bring your lunch from home and you'd sit in there and you'd eat your sandwiches or maybe heat up the leftovers, but not now. You know, it's a little bit of a... uh, uh, The workplace has become a social place and people go out for lunch and, again, spend that $15 or or more per day. So so this is a, a generational change. People are happy to spend money for a bit of lifestyle and work has become a lifestyle social interaction point. And so the daily coffees and the, and the lunch is just part of it. Uh, now, that's okay as long as the, the earnings are going up and the savings are going up and indeed the future retirement pathway is clear. But we're not so much seeing that with, with the generation that are really enjoying the journey, not so much thinking about the financial destination. Mark, you mentioned, or Peter mentioned, that the trend towards um, obviously services away from things that, uh, in terms of how we spend our money. Mm. What, what are the big trends that investors need to really focus on at the moment? What are the things well, that, you know, as an investor, you, you just see and you think it's going to be really reshape the, the investment world over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, well, a lot of people, you know, when they think about business opportunities, immediately look in this era to the technology trends. And I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's good and there's, there's great opportunities there. But I encourage people to look at the demographic trends because each of those emerging demographic groups or segments can create a whole new opportunity and, and a whole new marketplace. And uh, if we look at what's happening in Australia, we've got population growth, which is you know, great for most businesses that are providing services or goods. That domestic demand is growing, but shifts within that, you know, the generational change. So as we've been discussing, what worked for the baby boomers may not work for Generation Y or Z. The 20-somethings think differently. They spend money differently. So that creates opportunities. We've got an aging population and great opportunities there. We're aging because we've got people living longer. And so the cashed up retirees of today will have longer in their post-working lives where they'll be spending money and traveling and looking to you know, soak up some, some great retirement options, some, some services that can meet their needs there, you know, creates great opportunities as well. We've got more cultural diversity and new and emerging cultural segments that again are market segments in their own right. So organizations or entrepreneurs who can see the emerging consumer segments 
created by the demographics or the social trends can really profit and uh, and meet the needs of growing numbers. Yeah, I, I've just come back from you know, northern New South Wales and organic is the word. Mm-hmm. And remember, Amazon, Bessos bought an organics business, actually went into bricks and mortar. And like, who can you remember a time when there wasn't a word called come kombucha or what is it kombucha or kombucha <laughs> kombucha and, uh, and tofu is everywhere yeah, and everyone, everyone drinks this stuff now <laughs> it didn't exist before that is the trend without a doubt Mark McCrindle thanks for joining us on the program oh, you're very welcome thank you that was Mark McCrindle if you want to look up his work and it's pretty good work too go to mccrindle.com.au and now a word from our sponsors Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? Okay, and always remember, when we talk about 3.89%, that is our headline rate, and it's exactly the same as our comparison rate because we don't add on fees. That's the important lesson I always want to make um, sure you know. Now, if you get a really good interest rate, make sure you ask your lender what the comparison rate is because you can find there's a very big difference between what you think you're paying and what you're really paying. Now, earlier this week, Paul caught up with the CEO of Marley Spoon, Fabian Siegel. And I've got to say, Paul was quite knocked out about uh, the story, particularly when he didn't know it was a listed um, stock market, uh, a company on the stock market, and uh, I think you'll find this a very, very interesting yarn about a guy who's created a business all around delivering food to people who generally can't cook. I'm joined by Fabian Siegel. He's the CEO and managing director of Marley Spoon. Fabian, thanks for joining us on the program. Sure, perfect. Thank you for having me. Now, you're in the business of what's described as a subscription-based meal kit provider. Now, uh, for those who aren't familiar with Marley Spoon, perhaps you could start by just explaining what you do and what you provide. Yeah, absolutely. So um, here at Marley Spoon, we make it easy for people to cook. Um, so when you think about it, you walk in a supermarket and you're seeing all the fresh ingredients there and you could cook anything you like in theory – uh, most likely what happens, at least for me, I always used to go home and then I cook the same two or three things over and over again. Uh, mm-hmm. Steak with broccoli, steak with green beans. So what Molly Spoon does is we have chefs that create recipes every week. So every week there's 20 new recipes. And then as a customer, you just select for the following week, what is it I'd like to cook that week? Um, how many portions do I need? How many times that week I want to cook? And then we send you... And one day of that week, normally on Mondays, that's when people prefer to have their Marley Spoon mm-hmm. box, they send you a box with all the fresh ingredients, the recipe card, so you can cook an amazing weeknight dinner in 30 to 40 minutes. So the only thing you need is salt, pepper, and oil. Everything else we ship to you. So it's really about making 
weeknight cooking easy and effortless, so there's one thing less for you to worry about. So they're not pre-cooked meals, but you get all the fresh ingredients and a recipe. Presumably, look, do I need to be a, a master chef, or uh, what, what sort of skills do I need to actually um, sort of turn in what you provide into yes. a, a fantastic meal? So I think the skills that you need is you need to be able to read a six-step recipe, um, and that's it. And you need to like to eat. And so I think those two things... Uh, make it pretty straightforward. So everybody uh, can use um, a Mali spoon and or Dinnerly. We have two brands in the market. The mm-hmm. Dinnerly is the more economical brand. Both of those brands are very easy uh, to use. You just follow six simple steps. Uh, and then uh, and, and depending on the meal, between 30 and 45 minutes of cooking time. And then you have a freshly cooked dinner for your family on the table. And so where did the, uh, the idea for this business come from? Uh... The, um, well, as I mentioned earlier, I always wondered about, um, and I do cook for my family in our household, um, but I used to cook the same things again and again. So this was a little bit annoying for us. Mm-hmm. And I came across um, a similar business that has been actually invented in Sweden uh, in 2007. And um, that inspired me. And the business there called Lina Smartcast is a little bit different. They don't give you the choice. They kind of choose for you what to cook, which I didn't like. But they gave me this idea of convenience, of getting something delivered to your home, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. The only thing we added to the mix is that you can choose uh, from a weekly changing menu. And people love, actually, that specific aspect because it makes the product more personal because everybody has different need. You either have children in the household or maybe you are very busy and you want fast recipes and others are want to explore new cuisines. So everybody has something else. Uh, and so our menus that we create, they are crafted in a way that they touch on all of these different uh, interests and dietary uh, needs um, and that we can then serve them with. And are your customers, are they uh, you finding people of all ages or is it very much sort of targeted towards you know, the millennials or people with, you know, two-income families who don't have kids and don't have a lot of time? How do you sort of get a read on who are the sort of... Yeah, so we're doing some research um, to, to, of course, always understand our customers better. And it's quite interesting. The, the, the group that's using Marley Spoon is actually a very broad group. Um, it's from 30 years onwards all the way up to 60, 65. Um, not so many trends. So it starts, of course, in the 20s, but really the core audience starts at 30 years and older. 80% of our customers are women. Mm-hmm. Um, 80% and when we women. ask that, 80% are women. Right. Um, they are the ones that make the decisions, apparently, uh, these, these days, <laughs> though, in terms of cooking. Um, and when it comes then to, um, um, uh, when we ask them, what do you have in common? Um, there's only one thing that they have in common, because from a geographic perspective, mm-hmm. We do serve nationwide in the six markets we're in. Also in Australia, we serve 70% of the Australian households. So this is a product that's not only used in urban areas, but also suburban and even rural areas. So it's not that there is a certain cluster in regards to geography, but we do see that 86% of our customers are in a committed relationship. So this is not a single product. It's a product for those that already have made cooking part of their lives. 40% of our customers have children in the household. So this is a big group, but it's not the majority of our customers. So what we see is for all of those households that already cook three, four, five times a week, um, Marley Spoon can actually make that experience um, more effortless and can upgrade the experience 
Um, and therefore, it also shows us that we clearly compete with supermarkets because mm-hmm. if you want to cook today, where do you get all your food from? Well, it's from Woolworths and Coal. And so this is um, also where we feel like we not only make it easier and more convenient and uh, more interesting to cook, we actually can do this at the similar price point as a Woolworths or Coles, meaning if you would buy all the ingredients that we ship you either with Dinnerly or with Marley Spoon individually at the smallest possible amount that you could buy, you're actually going to pay the same price. And that's interesting. So we can compete with these supermarkets on price while actually delivering a much higher valued experience. How, how big is the industry for, I don't know whether it's sort of food technology, but certainly the application of, you know, of convenience, both in, I guess, both in uh, cooked meals, but also pre-cooked or, or, or ready-to-cook uh, uh, meals? I mean, how, how big could this market become, do you think? Yes, so it's very interesting. I, I always believe, as an entrepreneur, you cannot change customers' behavior. Mm-hmm. You have to serve existing behavior. And when I look at the market, and my last business was actually in the takeout space, so I do understand this convenience part of this industry as well. What I've learned is that people spend uh, uh, more than 10 times more on groceries than they spend on takeout. So while people do order a pizza maybe once a week, the majority of spends is actually not takeout, uh, but more like groceries. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at the addressable market for Marley Spoon, I ask myself, who's cooking today and how big is that market? And it turns out that groceries by far is the largest vertical of consumer spending, maybe after your mortgage or your rent. So it's a massive market. In the U.S. alone, it's a trillion-dollar market, just the grocery space. And a a big chunk of that is going actually into fresh products that you need for cooking. So cooking is an existing very big behavior that most people do, most people eat, uh, and that is our market. Now, not everybody that is buying groceries is willing to buy groceries online. So the channel switch, we have seen in online shopping also in other verticals, like toys or fashion or, 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 or electronics, um, where depending on the category, 30 to 40% of these sales has shifted from offline to online in the last 15 years. This has not happened yet in groceries. Only a minority, depending on the market, 2 to 3% of grocery sales are online. The majority, 97 plus percent, are still going into supermarkets physically. So we see uh, as this is shifting now and starting to shift that a lot of growth will actually come from this channel switch that we've seen already in many other verticals mm-hmm. and consumers are now discovering online shopping also for groceries. And so we at Marley Spoon, we are kind of benefiting from this overall trend that people are more open to shop more things online. Now, you've, uh, your business, I think, is in seven or eight countries. Um, just to explain sort of your target markets and, and, uh, and where, you've, uh, where you've really grown. Yeah, we're operating in um, three regions, U.S., uh, Europe, and Australia. Um, uh, the largest region and also the fastest growing region currently is the U.S. In the first quarter, we grew 107% year over year uh, in uh, the U.S., but um, uh, the second largest region actually is Australia. It's also our most mature region in terms of margin and past profitability. Um, and, and that region also is growing very, very healthy, 36% year over year. So we see high growth in all regions. Uh, Europe is also growing a bit slower. Um, the reason for that is that in Europe, the food prices 
um, are a bit lower. So the competition between supermarkets is quite fierce. And as we always take our price point um, from the supermarket as a benchmark, mm -hmm. our margins tend to be a bit lower in Europe and therefore our acquisition budget for a new customer is accordingly also a bit lower. So as we always target to get profitable return for every customer that we invest into, we see our majority of growth coming from US and Australia, which has been the case also of the past years. And Europe also is growing very healthily, two digits, I think it was 23% in the first quarter, uh, but always a step behind, probably behind the US and Australia. Now, your Marley Spoon is a, is a listed company in the Australian Stock Exchange. Can you just explain the history of why the company is listed in Australia, given that it sounds like most of your business is in the US and outside Australia? Um, yeah, so that's a good question. When we um, were invited by Macquarie to um, test the market, um, not last year, but actually the year before, um, back then Australia was in fact our largest market right. um, yeah. and our most mature market. And we saw um, a lot of um, investors like the idea of investing in a disruptive tech startup that's not only Australia only, but also gave them the opportunity to invest um, into the same have disruptive technology startups with an exposure to other markets, U.S. and Europe. That was one aspect that where we got positive um, feedback. Also, um, um, many of our um, um, future investors were customers, right. and so yeah. they love the product. And it's always easy, of course, to explain what you do if somebody uses your product. Uh, these two things coupled with, um, I think, the, the positioning of the ASX to be a good market to list for companies that are a bit smaller, and back then we were smaller than we are today, where maybe would have been a bit too small to list the company uh, in the US or in Europe, is all these, these, these uh, three things together uh, made the ASX, um, um, uh, I think, a good option. And we're very happy that we successfully were able to list the company last year here uh, on the ASX. So um, that was the, 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 the background of why now we not only have a substantial part of our business here in Australia, but we're actually also listed here in Australia. Right. Now, you're trading under stock code TRIPLE-M, which I think is an interesting uh, stock acronym. Um, just sort of major shareholders? Um, well, management um, and myself, we are still the largest shareholder group in the company. Mm -hmm. um, we do have as well... Um, uh, um, four large shareholders, um, which are venture capital funds that invest into the company. Um, one of them is called um, um, Union Square Ventures. The other one uh, is called um, um, Lakestar Capital. There's Rocket Internet as mm -hmm. a third. And then there's Luxor. These are four venture capital companies invested in the business. But we also have large public holders, um, which are disclosed also. One of them is called IFM, which is uh, yep. an Australian long-only fund. Another one is an, a, a big U.S. fund called Acacia Partners. Um, so we have on the register uh, a lot of larger holders. Actually, we only have 30% of our shares currently pre-floating, and of that, 22%, uh, the majority is held by these two large funds. So there's not a lot of shares in the market, which you can see also on the trading, there is at this point in time, actually, uh, not much trading going on. Um, and uh, we hope that, uh, I mean, over the next 12 months that um, this will uh, develop. And I think uh, it will help that uh, throughout the year, um, one of the initial lockups that, that are still in place right now of these institutional pre-IPO investors will make more shares available and will probably increase also um, and that there will be more liquidity in the stock 
uh, right. down the road. Now, you provide a guidance that you hope to get to uh, uh, a break-even uh, in terms of uh, operating EBITDA basis by 2020. What are, what are sort of the key sort of uh, things that are going to get you there in terms of uh, get get into that sort of commi- that that guidance? Yeah, I think there's there's three elements to that. Um, the first one is um, the business um, will continue to grow, um, but it will not have to grow on these high growth rates that we've seen in the past. So last year we grew 78% year over year, mm-hmm. uh, which is massive growth. Um, and what we have guided the market to is that in order to bring the company to profitability by 2020, that will be growing a bit slower. So we're going to measure our investment into new customer acquisition, meaning we're probably um, not going to uh, reduce it in absolute terms, but we're probably going to hold it flat. And that will mean that marketing as a percentage of sales will go down. Um, and uh, so while the business overall will continue to grow this year very healthily, uh, two digits um, uh, numbers, it will probably grow slower than last year. So that's, but that's the first part that will get us to this profitability to have the top line. On the margin side, we guided the market that this year will be between mid and high 20s on the contribution margin that's with after cost of goods sold, basically the box to the customer's home. Um, and last year, this was at um, 21%. So we'll see uh, a continuous health development. So we went from 17 to 18. We went from 16.5% to 21%, and we guided the market to mid to high 20s margin uh, this year. So that's the second part that will get us there to Mm -hmm. EBITDA profitability by 2020. So measured growth, continued margin improvement, and continued cost control. I think over the past years, we've been always proud that as top line grew rapidly, our GNA only grew a fraction of that. For example, we grew 78% year over year, 18 compared to 17, but the GNA just went up by 24%. So um, our, basically our infrastructure cost doesn't really grow as fast as our top line growth. And so we guided the market that also GNA this year will only fractionally grow compared to revenue growth. And so these three things together, then you can then quickly do the math as the top line continues to grow, margin continues to consistently expand, um, and costs will be kept under control that at that point in time, um, the, the business will uh, be profitable on an EBITDA, operating EBITDA basis. And um, we guided the market also, we just have done our 4C, that our Q2 um, that we are in right now will already be uh, reflecting some of that and will look very different compared to Q1. So we believe that in the near future, there will be a clear line of sight of this development Okay. we try to sketch out. Well, look, uh, good luck with that. I mean, I think it's a really interesting industry and I think it's uh, it's great that the, the company is... Uh, uh, it's making headway and is uh, able to, uh, you know, is, is listed on the ASX under stock code Triple uh, M. So, look, the whole business of, uh, of I guess, uh, subscription-based meal kits is a is a really interesting uh, uh, area, and like something I've got to have a, a close look at. And maybe even some of my moderate cooking skills can uh, can really <laughs> enjoy something good to eat. So, look, uh, 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 Fabian uh, Siegel, the CEO of of Marley Spoon, thank you very much for joining us on Switzer. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Fabian Siegel, who's the CEO of Marley Spoon, with my colleague Paul Rickard, who had the great joy of interviewing him. Now, 
We're going to catch up with the most exposed, the most revealed, the most quoted economist in the country, Dr Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. And we want to know, will the Reserve Bank cut rates tomorrow and what kind of economy will the next government inherit? Shane Oliver, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. My pleasure. All right, now I'm not going to play up the fact that you're the most exposed economist in the, in the whole Western world, Shane, but I, I do take my hat off to you for your level of exposure. But let's move on to more important topics. <laughs> Thank you. Let's talk about tomorrow. A lot of people are wondering whether the Reserve Bank will cut. I've been asked the question. I've said, I don't think they will, knowing Phil, but I wouldn't be unhappy if they did. What's your view? I think they will, um, but a bit like you, I wouldn't be unhappy if they done it and then wait a month or so. Um, I, I'd have to say it's a very close call. Uh, the Reserve Bank doesn't like uh, changing interest rates in election campaigns. They have done it in the past. They prefer not to. They could wait and see till uh, they get a look at what sort of uh, stimulus we ultimately get, fiscal stimulus, that is. And they could also argue, well, unemployment is still uh, trending sideways. Let's wait and see what it does. Um, but on balance, I, I sort of lend to the view that the, the inflation numbers have come in a lot weaker than expected. They're going to have to revise down their inflation forecasts. On top of that, we have had the economy slow down. And as we've uh, seen in the last few days or so, there's ongoing uncertainty about uh, global trade with uh, Trump sort of um, you know, returning as tariff man. So on balance, I think they probably will. But I'd have to say it's a very close call. And it wouldn't surprise me if they decide to wait. So, Shane, obviously there's other parts to the economy than just the housing market, but one of the stories doing the rounds last week was that the Reserve Bank or APRA could achieve probably more by just reducing the assessment rate that is used to work out whether you can service a home loan or not from it currently sits at 7.25%. And one of the stories was, well, if you reduce that by half a percent, suddenly borrowers can actually afford to borrow to invest in the home market and give that a bit of uh, stimulation. What did you make of that story? And was that, uh, do you think there's a lot more to the in terms of cutting the home loan rate than just trying to boost the uh, the home market? I think that uh, that uh, that buffer rate, uh, 7.25% needs to be looked at. I think it's part of the story here. Um, but I don't think it's the main aspect that... that um, 7%, 7.25% number was introduced by APRA back in, excuse me, back in 2014. And it played a role, of course, in uh, slowing down the property market. But I think the main thing slowing down the property market were the limits on lending initially to investors and then to interest-only borrowers. And more recently, the tightening up in terms of uh, people's expenses and income levels. And, of course, now the focus on total debt-to-income ratio. So all of those things. I think have played a big role in all of this. And I also think that if the Reserve Bank cuts interest rates, they won't be wanting to sort of set off another housing upswing. They're really looking to support people who have already got a mortgage and might be feeling a bit uh, depressed about things given the fall in their, in their home prices if they're located in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, so I don't think that the main aim of any interest rate cut will be to reignite the property market in any way. Um, but I do think that that rate needs to be looked at. It does seem a little bit too high in today's world of very low inflation and low interest rates. It seems to me, um, Shane, that, and you've touched on it, saying that you know basically the assessment system that's being um, put in place since the Royal Commission and since APRA 
got you know annoyed at so many investors and so many households with interest only loans all those sort of changes have meant that if someone lines up for a loan nowadays it's a lot harder to get a loan if you can't get a loan you can't go to an auction you can't bid the price up you can't slow down the rate of house price falls and we interviewed the ceo of uh, mortgage choice susan mitchell last week and both paul and i were surprised when i asked the question what percentage of people who used to get loans are now not getting loans? And she said 20%. Now, does a number like that quite shock you as well? One in five people that used to get loans aren't getting loans. It seems like a very good reason why house prices are falling. That's right. You can debate the number. And I have seen a similar number bandied about by someone else uh, hmm. recently. Um, but you can debate the precise number. Whatever it is, there's been a reduction in the number of people getting loans. When they do get loans, it takes a lot longer. Uh, as you say, you know, it used to be easy to get your finance lined up to go to the auction. Now you can't do that. So that makes people more cautious when they go to the auction. So I, I think there's no doubt that the, the, the credit tightening or the tightening in credit conditions that started last year actually started a little bit before the Royal Commission, but I think the Royal Commission sort of gave it a push along. It made the banks a lot more nervous about things. Uh, I, I think that tightening has certainly had a big impact. And the problem is it's occurred at a time when there's a lot of new supply hitting the market with the apartment building boom um, uh, over the last few years. And so those two things together um, explain why 90% of the reason why prices have come down. There's a few other things as well. You know, people switching from interest only to principal on interest and then the uh, reduction in foreign demand, something like 80% reduction in foreign demand. All those things have played a role and certainly about tax of negative gearing and capital gains tax. But I think the main thing has been the supply surge um, coming at a time of a tighter credit condition. Mm. How would you um, rate, sort of con- think consumers are feeling at the moment? I was asked about this in another interview today, and it also came following the, the Westpac uh, profit results uh, today, in which case the CEO, sort of Brian Hartzer, said he felt consumers were a bit uh, lacking in confidence. I mean, what, what's your assessment about the state of... You know, consumers and how they're feeling about the economy at the moment? Uh, that's a good question because the consumer is something like 60% of, accounts for 60% of spending in our economy. I, I think they're feeling a little bit cautious about things. It's, I mean, it's not down in the dumps. People aren't down in the dumps, but they are feeling a little bit cautious about things given you know, the weakness in house prices, um, people talking about the property market, so the construction cycle turning down and potential job losses there. Um, ongoing bouts of uncertainty about the global economy to some degree, but I think that's leading to a degree of caution. And the, the evidence would suggest also that uh, when house prices come down, it does have a, a bit of a dampener on consumer spending, particularly in areas like cars. Car sales are down from where they were a year ago. And, of course, uh, on consumer durables, um, you know, big-ticket items. And people will keep going to Woolworths and Meyer and Aldi and what have you, um, but of course they look at the discounts, but they're less inclined to sort of rush out and buy the big ticket items. So that's certainly a bit of a dampener. Now, of course, one doesn't want to get too negative here because yes, prices have come down. They're down 15% in Sydney, but it, that's a little bit of a test, but it hasn't caused a crash in things. Um, spending is still continuing. Retail sales have really just sort of slowed down to say a 2.5% pace as opposed to collapsing. The other thing is that the budget. Uh, announced tax cuts mm-hmm. for low and middle income earners, $1,080. They fill in their tax uh, 
tax bill or tax forms at the end of the year, end of the financial year, and of course Labor has said that they'll match that, and of course improved it a little bit for those earning between thirty-five thousand and forty-five thousand. So, so there is that little bit of relief coming, um, which I think will provide some help. And if there is an interest rate cut, uh, whether it's uh, this month or next month or whenever, I think that will also help gear and keep the consumer or the, the household sector of the economy going. How better a slower rate than might be desired, but it will keep it going. Shane, we always talk about, oh, the election has a negative impact on the economy. And let's just not debate it. Let's just say, yeah, it does. We don't know exactly why, why people are worried about buying a TV before an election. But sometimes there can be specific ones when it comes to real estate because, you know, Bill is promising to make some pretty big changes. But what kind of economy do you think we'll get in the second half? Lots of people said, OK, it's been soft. September quarter, December quarter. Are things going to start improving over the course of the year? And if so, why? Uh, I think they'll be a little bit stronger than they were in the last half of last year because uh, I, I think growth in those two quarters is around 0.2%. One is 0.3 and the next one is 0.2. So that's pretty weak. That annual growth sort of around the 1% level. And that probably overstated the weakness a little bit. We see growth more around 225 sort of level, which is not as strong as the government and the Reserve Bank might like, closer to, to 3%, um, but it's still growing. It's a, it's a bit of a slowdown, but it's still growing. But if you look at it in terms of the sort of growth we've seen in the second half of the, this year, it might be a little bit better than what we saw in the second half of last year. And therefore, I think that uh, whoever wins the election uh, will inherit some challenges regarding the economy. Um, but we'll also get some uh, some positives, which in some ways might make it a little bit easier. The budget will probably end up being in surplus for this financial year, so one year ahead of schedule, and that's mainly been because the iron ore price is held up at very high levels. Uh, you know, when you're running around $94 a tonne, uh, the budget is something, something like $55 a tonne, and each $10 adds $3.5 billion per annum to Canberra. So, That'll probably get them over the line into a surplus for this financial year, which means that, if anything, yes, the economy will be constrained. Yes, unemployment might have drifted up a little bit, but there might be even more scope for fiscal stimulus uh, sometime in the next few months. Now, it'll take a while before that comes through. They'll probably wait until uh, later in the year before doing that, or Labor would probably have a mini-budget. Um, but bottom line is, yes, there will be some challenges, um, but I don't see the economy collapsing and I do see uh, more stats of fiscal stimulus. Look, I've got one last question. Paul might have another one as well, but my last question to you is this. As you well know, um, Shane, I've been terrorised by all these trolls who who go to bed every night and kneel beside their bed and pray for Armageddon in the house price area. You know, they've been waiting. They're, they're obviously Steve Keen acolytes or or even worse, worse than Steve, and they, they still believe there's going to be a 40% fall in house prices. And I know you've become increasingly more negative than I want you to be, but try and put this in perspective. Can you imagine a 40% house price fall in Australia? And if you could, are there any likely developments that could actually make that happen? Well, it's always easy to imagine anything, and lots of people are imagining these things. Well, well, imagining um, you in, in a tie that's not <laughs> as loud and aggressive as you usually wear? Yeah, I can imagine that, but go on. 
But uh, I, I don't. I don't think we'll get that. I mean, my my uh, view is fifteen percent nationwide. So far, we've done uh, ten or eleven. So we're two thirds of the way there nationwide. Sydney and Melbourne, I think, a bit more negative. Um, looking at a fall of twenty five percent. Sydney is uh, down fifteen, and Melbourne's down eleven. So we're still. You, you could argue well, because I would have to review this. If there's an interest rate cut. Uh, uh, in May or June, that's a little bit earlier than what I was originally assuming, so that may take some of the pressure off, and I'd also have to look at who wins the election. Mm. Um, you know, if it's uh, um, if we're going to see change in the gearing capital gains tax, then that probably leans on the negative side. If not, then you know, we might be close to the bottom. But I, I uh, to get a 40% fall, you know, things would have to go horribly wrong. I think you'd need to see much higher unemployment. And bear in mind... Uh, four or five years ago, you may recall, this unemployment rate got something like 6.3%, 6.4%. We're now 5%. If we go back to those sorts of levels, then I think that would be a constraint. But I don't know that it would be enough to get us to a 40% fall in house price. So so I do see unemployment rising a little bit, probably the 5.5%, but I don't think it's going to rise enough to cause for sales. And that's the real issue here. To get a, a 40% fall in house prices, You'd have to have a big pickup in forced selling, panic selling, where, where people are foreclosed on by the banks because they can't meet their payments. If unemployment just goes up to five and a half or just goes back to where it was a few years ago, I don't think that would cause enough stress. I don't think it would cause the forced selling that would be necessary to get us to that 40% decline. And another aspect to that is I don't, don't think the deterioration of lending standards in Australia has been anything like that in the US prior to the GFC. We haven't had ninja loans, money getting lent to people who have no jobs. Fair enough, maybe too much was lent to people on interest only, but they had jobs. And if you look at the delinquency rate numbers in Australia, they're still very low. Even in Perth, where prices have fallen 20-odd percent and unemployment's gone up dramatically over the last few years, albeit it's still, in a historical context, still reasonably low, um, you haven't seen a massive increase in defaults. So in other words, people are still managing to sort of hang on to their home, keep up the payments. Rather, what you're seeing here in our property markets is largely a function of investors sort of staying away um, and, you know, a few people sort of getting out, people delaying purchases. But it's not a um, sort of a panic style decline like we saw at the time of the GFC in the US and parts of Europe. So that's why I don't see 40% fall. I think there's probably more downside. Um, but, I, you know, if you look at the uh, the auction clearance rates, if you look at the price decline so far, there's, there's no evidence of panic selling or forced selling. Okay. Well, you know, I just hope that the most overexposed economist in the history of economists <laughs> is also <laughs> excessively <laughs> correct. <laughs> excessively correct. I hope that they go hand in hand. Shane Oliver, AMP Capital, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, thanks Shane. That was Shane Oliver, of course, from AMP Capital. Thanks for joining us on the show this week. I look forward to uh, catching up with you next week.